Noel chapter 2. I'm going to be covering kind of the first part up to around um, verse 18. Because I believe from there forward, there's kind of a um, hopeful look toward this building for at the end, the coming of the Messiah and uh, the day of the Lord in the realm of Jesus coming to earth and all that he did while he was on earth and all he accomplished. So save that for the next time. But last week we looked in chapter one to see the coming judgment of God upon his people. And um, it was pictured for us, or it is pictured for us, this judgment is in a locust swarm. Is this a literal locust swarm? Is it an army? I don't know if you if you pay attention to reading through chapter two, you can kind of see the difficulty where the language goes back and forth. And it seems like even for Joel, he's talking about locusts at one point, then he's talking about army, then he's talking about men, then he's talking about locusts. But I think again, the ultimate um, point in what we need to pay attention to is that there was judgment coming in some form, and God was bringing it. And if it's an army, he was picturing the fact that this army was going to be overwhelming like a locust swarm. If it's literally a locust swarm, um, that's terrifying too. Either way, it's going to be devastation and there's no way to escape it. Um, maybe it is symbolic for an army. I don't know, but I do know that the judgment was going to be heavy. In fact, Joel calls it the day of the Lord. And he says for us here, it is going to be a day of darkness and not light. A day that will cause the inhabitants of the land to tremble so that someone must stand up and sound the alarm, he says. we got to have somebody to blow the trumpet or blow the horn to sound the alarm that an enemy is coming, that frightening thought that somebody was about to do something. I don't know for all of you, but I remember back during the first... Um, Middle Eastern War that we were involved in in my lifetime for sure. Um, watching on TV, you know, the war unfold on TV. And the first time I listened to those uh, sirens going off, and I had to, I, I tried to think what it was like to be living there. Those sirens meant something's about to happen. There's a bomb on the way, there's something about to take place. In much the same way, this person standing at the walls of Jerusalem and blowing the horn was to warn, hey, there's an army coming, there's a bad darkness coming, and this time it is the judgment of the Lord. And so there's no defense which you can bring against this coming army. So this horn was to warn the people of an approaching doom, one that Joel said has never been seen before. The likes of it have never been seen, nor will be seen again. Again, Joel is stealing, taking a lot of language from Moses and Deuteronomy and the judgment on Egypt and that covenantal language and those warnings that God gave his people that he would judge them if they broke his covenant. And of course, they have broken it. This is how judgment looks to those whom it falls upon. And it's scary. It's doom. It's bad. It's darkness. It's not light. And of course, this points to the final, ultimate day of the Lord. Joel says it's like a fire which devours everything in its path. Like war horses running and pulling chariots. The dread is great. The anticipation is unbearable. That's the point of 
all this language, trying to awaken the people out of this sinful slumber. God is coming for you. What a horrible anticipation. I read that it was said of a real locust swarm, the kind like the Middle East would have been accustomed to and fearful of, could be heard six miles away. Now think about that. If you could hear locusts swarming six miles from here, about from here to Waco, that's horrifying to think. Of course, if it was a real army, maybe you could hear the troops preparing or the sound of fighting that far away. But Joel says the people are in anguish and their faces grow pale because this enemy, like soldiers, scale the walls and never swerve from the paths. They are undeterred. They burst through weapons and are not halted. They climb into houses and through windows like thieves. That's exactly, again, how Moses described the locusts in Egypt. They went into the homes. They, if you can imagine, these locusts not only were out eating all the food and the plants and the green leaves, they were in the people's homes. It was devastating. So the minds of the people of God here in this sermon, this lesson from Joel, their minds would have been taken aback to the stories they had all been told about Egypt and the horrific judgment that God brought down upon those people. And now God was coming for them because of their sin. He says it's like the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, the stars stop shining. Unless the people forget, again, Joel points out, this judgment is exacted by God himself. This is God's army. Be it a real human army, be it an army of locusts, this is the judgment of God. It is his workers doing his work. Because we know there's no happenstance in this world. There's no act of nature that brings about devastation. Especially this, this is the day of the Lord. It's a very awesome day, Joel says. Who can endure it? I think one of the things that we're brought around to thinking when we read through Joel is this glimpse of the awesomeness of our God. This glimpse of how the Almighty God is amazingly powerful. When you're reminded of that, when you think about the judgment that he can exact at any moment upon sin. And we think about the judgment he has poured out on behalf of his people at Calvary's cross. Man, we we find ourselves like the prophet Isaiah, do we not? Woe is me. I'm undone. Amongst a bunch of people of unclean lips. My lips are unclean. I dwell in the land of uncleanness. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. think that one indicator of a person who's never been redeemed is that person has no recognition or respect for the awesomeness of the Lord God. I mean, when we look around the world and we see how people act just this week, the news that we, the good news should be good news for the church, as little as it is, the way people have reacted in anger. They, they do not understand the awesomeness of God. Those of us who believe, we hear these words and we believe that this can happen, not because we're afraid of 
grasshoppers, but we're afraid of the judgment of God. We recognize he is holy. People who would shake their fists in the face of God and dare him and curse him and hate him have no understanding of who he is. They can't. Or they wouldn't hate him. So again, this type of message, this day of darkness, this day of gloom, which causes people's faces to grow pale. It'll frighten the people of God. The real believers will hear messages like this. They'll read these passages. It'll bring us to repentance and cause us to be reminded of how awesome and great God is. But those who hate him, they might shrink back in fear. Cause of judgment, but not because of the God who brings the judgment. One day we are reminded that this judgment will fall ultimately on them and they will feel his wrath and they will know the anguish and the hot flaming holiness of our God. But then it'll be too late. But for those of us who have been blessed by God to have found favor with him, for those of us who based on nothing we've ever done to him or for him, but solely upon grace, those of us who are called the children of God, these descriptions, these thoughts of judgment, we do draw back. We know the awesomeness of our Heavenly Father. We hear these judgments. and We know that He is powerful to do what He is threatening to do. But because we are His and because He loves us, as Joel said, he sends somebody to blow another trumpet. And this trumpet, instead of warning of the judgment to come, this trumpet is not a battle call. Because again, we have no weapons with which to fight against the judgment of God. But this time we receive a judgment call or a warning call with a trumpet to lay down our weapons and rather take up mercy. I love this in verse 12. We come to... Even now, declares the Lord. Think about that. This amazing description of judgment, beginning in chapter 1. This judgment is coming. It's already here. It's at your door. In other words, it's really too late. Yet even now. This is the word that only the elect of God can hear. Even now. Even when you've been so sinful, so rebellious, so neglectful. And from a human perspective, it's too late. Yet even now, when the locusts are literally crawling on your interior walls and underneath the top of your bed and the harvest is gone and you have nothing to eat, nothing to bring to God even for worship, to appease for your sin. Yet even now, listen to the Almighty who could crush you with just a breath and utterly destroy you. The very one who made these locusts. Listen to what he says. Return to me. That's an amazing thought. This is a glorious thought. Hey, this is where we all were, by the way. Between us and eternity stood nothing but the judgment of God. And yet, he calls out to everybody. Return to me. Come to me. And some of us here, for some reason. And we come. Man, how blessed is that? Many there be that go in the wide gate never hear, even though it's blasted in their ears, even though the trumpet is blown, 
and blown. They never hear. But some of us hear. And we hear this awesome God that could destroy us that says, come to me. Return unto me. What an awesome God is ours. Even when we leave. Even when we would have other gods. And even when our God has had his fill of our wickedness and our spiritual adulteries. Even then he has someone calling out to you. Return to me. Isn't that amazing? Mercy. Not giving us what we deserve, but giving us mercy and repentance. Reminded of Hosea. That we had every right to do away with Gomer. Put her away. According to the law, put her to death. Time after time, she had been an adulteress. Instead, he says, I will go and I will love her in such a way that she'll have to come back. That's what God does for us. I will continue to provide. I will continue to love you. Come to me. Return to me. You may not be saved from the judgment at hand. The locust plague may destroy you. But you can be saved from God. So he says repent. Repent. But please notice this. He says return to me. But when you do return. You return on his terms. With all your heart. Return to me. With all your heart. This merciful God. He's calling out to us. He is merciful but he is just he is going to punish sin he has punished sin i heard somebody say this and it made so much sense and simple we have to have a just god and a merciful god if he were not just there would be no reason to repent because if he's not just then he's just capricious he acts on a whim why I repent he's not just he's going to do what he wants to do no matter what but if he's not merciful, there's no use in repenting. Because if he's not merciful, your repentance is going to be empty. But because he is both just and merciful and gracious, we have to repent. And when we do repent, he is gracious and merciful to hear us take us back. With all your heart, for the people of God at this point in history, it would have been outwardly manifested this repentance through weeping, through fasting, through mourning. You see, he called he called them to that. Fast and weep and mourn. And amazingly, the New Testament called us to the same thing, did it not? What Michael read to us from James. How do we come to the Lord? Our weeping is turned to mourning. Our laughter Turn to sorrow. The same, the same point. Because our outward. The outward manifestation of our repentance. Reflects what's going on inside. So God says. Come fast and weep and mourn. But he's not so interested in that. As he is the inward reality. 
rend your hearts, he says. You can rend and tear your clothes or tear your tear your clothes in half. That's what rend means. And you can fast and you can weep because you know that's what God wants. But you will do those things. You will be mournful and you will be sorrowful over your sin when your heart has been torn and melted because you recognize your sin is ever before God. You recognize that there's no hope for you apart from God and apart from Him doing something in you. And we've all been there. We've, we claim that we know Christ. We do so based on this, that God has at some point brought us to weeping and mourning, not so much physically, but inwardly. Hearts have been ripped and torn. The very center of who we are. It may not look the same for everybody. And it certainly may may not manifest itself in our actions in the same way. But God will, when he brings you to repentance, he will break your heart over your sin. Constantly, over and over. You belong to God. I hope that your trust is in Christ. If so, you can't hold on to sin. He'll break your heart over and over. And I'll say this, if your sin is not breaking your heart, you need to stop and find out why. And there's nothing wrong with crying out to God to break my heart over my sin. Why am I sinning and it's not seeming to bother me? If you've never been there, I'm not sure how. But as a believer, we get there from time to time. And then God gives us repentance and we're so thankful. If your sin doesn't bother you, that's not a good thing. Did you hear that? Did you hear what else Michael read from James chapter 4? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. We cannot fellowship with darkness when we're light. I've seen that so much this week in the last few days. Reminders from men of God. The world will hate you when you stand for truth. The world is not going to like you. Jesus said this very clearly. They hated me. They're going to hate you. When we try to compromise and find a way around calling sin, sin, calling on people to repent over sin, instead trying to make them feel good, and hey, it's okay, you know, God's not that worried about sin. We start laying this aside and the Bible becomes a side issue. And we start trying to figure out how to fellowship with men that the Bible says we have no fellowship with. We're not called to be ugly. We're not called to be rude. But we are called, like Joel right here, to his own people, to the people of God. Rend your heart, not your garments. Turn to God from your idols. If you're not devastated by the weight of your sin and your unfaithfulness, then God is not yours and you're not God's. But if you hear that and you see this judgment is real and that God judges sin, if you hear that, that makes you different from the world. So repent. Turn from your idols. Turn to God. Whatever your idol is, if it's yourself, 
your sin, whatever. Because here's the great news. No matter your sin, no matter its frequency, no matter the consequences of it, God says, return to the Lord. Because he's your God and because he's gracious and he's merciful and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he relents over disaster. I love this. He's under no obligation to do so. But as Joel points out, the same way that Jonah pointed out, and I think it may be even Amos, certainly David later after praying over his son that ended up dying, he says this, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Your sin may cost you dearly. Your sin may cost you your life, but you never know when God's going to be gracious and turn and leave a blessing behind you. One thing as a believer, your sin can't cost you is your eternal life because Jesus paid for it. So turn from it. Stop chasing it. God may leave behind a blessing for you. Enough for you to worship him in the way he intended for you to. Man, don't we take that for granted so often? I think the people in Joel's day had taken for granted all the harvest. They have plenty. They have plenty to go throw some into the temple and offer worship. But suddenly when God took it away from them and it wasn't so readily available, the priests were even called on repent and perhaps God will leave us enough blessing there'll be some left over and we can worship. Man, we've been so blessed. God has left us behind so many things for us to worship with him, worship him with. We have a Bible. We have men to preach it. We have a building to meet in. We have songs left behind us millennia now we have the elements of the Eucharist every week we have the bread and the wine we have the fellowship the unity of the body all of that is gifts from God that he has left behind that we can worship him with so God calls his priests here to blow the trumpet and consecrate a fast a solemn assembly bring the people together I love this judgment is here its darkness has snuffed out the light. The priests are to blow the trumpet and gather the people together for a solemn assembly. The people of all ages, even nursing infants, they're hoping, come together and hope and pray and repent and hope that God will relent. That's the, that's the idea. You remember in Jonah when he was preaching and he was mad that God was going to hear the repentance of the people. That's one of the things that God said. Should I not turn? All these people who don't know these. Most people think he's referring to children. These little ones who don't know their right hand from their left hand. Wouldn't it be right for God to relent from his anger and destruction over these who haven't done anything to deserve it? You're the ones that done it. And I think it's the same thing here. Joel is saying, even bring your little ones. Because this judgment... Um, because of your sin is going to fall on everyone. Bring everybody together. Let people leave the things they're doing. Even the bride and the groom. The picture is a new bride and a new groom. They've just married. 
Leave behind everything. Don't even consummate your marriage. Get to the assembly. This is more important. Gather and weep and rend your hearts and say to God, spare your people. Because God loves obedience more than sacrifice. And in the manner of Moses again, call out to God and say, why? Why should your people be a reproach among the nations? Why should we get a bad, why should we give you a bad name? Don't punish us and let the world laugh at us and thereby, thereby laugh at you. And apparently the people did as he instructed, sort of moving into that next section. The Lord becomes jealous for his land and has pity on his people and blesses them. So in the midst of judgment, he's given them through the prophet a picture of what's to come. The invaders will be driven away. The land will be clear again. Never be put to shame again. And the pouring out of the Spirit will come. The promised Messiah will be here. Man, I think about this again as we have throughout these minor prophets. Is the world around us that we, this culture we live in, is it possibly any better than Judah's? Judah was in Joel's day. It, it can't be. The slaughtering of millions of unborn human children, the praise and promotion of all kinds of sexual perversion, the manipulation of vulnerable people, lying, thieving, idolatry, the list goes on. There's nothing Israel is guilty of that we're not guilty of. The judgment of God could fall at any time. God never has, nor will he ever ignore this. But the good news is he is long-suffering, he is patient, and he is kind, but he will judge. He will bring all things to order. All these days of the Lord point to a great and terrible day is yet to come, where his wrath will be poured out upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness. When you hear that, does that make you excited to see the world get what it deserves? Or does that too bring you to repentance and cause you to rend your heart and weep and call out to God for mercy on behalf of those who are going to get the judgment? I have to admit, sometimes that's not where I am. Sometimes I think about God pouring out his wrath on wicked people and I'm glad for it. I want to see it. And I think in that day, that will probably be proper. But in this day, I ought to be weeping because people are lost. People I know who don't know Christ. People that I'm kin to. People that I love. Yes, people that disagree with me politically. People that aren't excited about the things I'm excited over. But the wrath of God is serious. I know threats of justice and judgment further alienate unbelievers, but it brings believers to the feet of the Savior. In Joel's words, it'll bring us between the porch and the altar to the place of the recognition of our need for mercy and grace and the place to where we offer ourselves to God and cry out to Him. And also we cry out on behalf of the elect of God, as Paul said. I know there are more people 
Everything I do, I do for the sake of the elect. Not just the ones he could see, but he said, I'm doing everything I do for the sake of the elect. Because God's not just going to save these people. He's going to save more people. Maybe some of you, God's calling out to you. So what are you waiting for? Do you think there's some other way of escape? Hear this. You've been given these blessings too. You've been given the Bible. You've been given men to preach it to you. You've been given a church and people who care about you. You've been given food to eat, clothing, all the things to offer back to God in worship. Is your heart broken over your sin? And if not, why not? Turn to God from your idols. Your idols will not save you. You can't save yourself. Man, that's the greatest idol that's ever known to man. The self. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. God, these are heavy, heavy words of judgment. Yet right in the midst of the judgment comes the blessing, the blessed words of mercy, and forgiveness, and a reminder of how great and awesome you are. Long-suffering you are towards us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And we praise you that all of your people will. So God, even today, if your people are hearing this, they've yet to be redeemed, that you will pull them out from among this dark world. God, that you'll give them a new heart. You'll break that old heart over their sin, and you will just make a heart that's moldable to your will and to your word, like you've done for so many of us. Because all of this word, a lot of it's still tough to swallow and tough to hear, even as believers. But then you come in and you make our heart pliable so that the word softens it and we understand that we need to obey it. So forgive us when we don't. Make us more like Christ. and Give us greater faith and hope in him. And give us a greater love for the gospel, knowing that that's the way you save Anybody who is saved, God, make this church a church of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.